Uh, yes, I, I wrote Jesus as in a prayer. This is boring rock music. <laughs> Please deliver me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends and musicians get together to discuss an album from the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So each week we pick a random album from that list, we listen to it, we analyze it, we deliver some praise, and we heap some scorn, and ultimately give you our jackass opinions on whether or not you need to hear it. At the end of the episode, we're all going to vote and pick next week's album. Now, if you haven't had time to listen to this week's album, don't worry. We're going to give plenty of clips that will drop in along the way, as well as a playlist of all the random crap I'm sure we'll reference during the episode. Now, before we get any further, I want to remind you, dear listener, that if you dig what you're hearing, go ahead and like or subscribe or write a review on your favorite podcasting platform, or better yet, tell a friend about it. We'd love help in spreading the word about how you, your friends, and your family can waste an hour to an hour and a half of a perfectly serviceable day listening to us blather on about the minutia of all the music and crap that we love. I feel like I have to say that in this case, I feel really extra confident that our opinions are well informed on what's what's about to come. This is our genre, guys. Maybe it's not exactly a jackass opinion. Not I'll say in it's this like a per- Not in this particular, particular case. Particular, right? It often is. Thank you, Rob, for queuing it up. This week, we've been listening to an album that was called, in a recent review, an unformed, endearingly unwieldy first record that splits the difference between John Lennon, Curtis Mayfield, David Bowie, and Prince. That's right, I'm talking about the one and the only Lenny Kravitz and his debut album called Let Love Rule from 1989. So let's get right into the music with the opening track off the album, and then we'll come back with some introductions and some tweet length reviews. So here it is, the first track from Lenny Kravitz's debut album. This song is called Sitting on Top of the World. Right, there you have it that is track one side one we talk about mission statements this is the first song from a a long career of lenny kravitz let's throw things around the room with some introductions and some reviews tony let's throw it over to you first hey you know my tweet length review is if you told me this was the new lenny kravitz album i would completely 100 percent believe you um i have never heard it before Um, so being able to actually dig in and check it out this week was something new and exciting uh, for me. 
And, uh, you know, we'll get into it a little bit more about what we liked and didn't about it. But it was at the very least an interesting listen. Great. And Tony, welcome back to the show. It's good to have Thank you here. You. We, we appreciate Returning you. champion. Right. Good to be here welcome. again. Welcome, Tony. And, and Rob, if you felt that, you, you know, your, your, your input this week was going to be a bit more grounded and uh, well-founded and you needed someone to up the jackassery, um, I thank you for inviting me back. I am happy to fill that void. Challenge accepted. I just, <laughs> I just mean to say that I often find myself on these conversations feeling like and even saying out loud that we maybe don't have... We have a leg to stand on because we're musicians, we listen to a lot of music, and we understand the ins and outs of how to make records and things like that, but we're often swimming in genre waters that we feel a little outmatched by. And, I, and it, by the way, I think that's a good thing to, to note. Oh, sure. But I just wanted to point out that Lenny Kravitz, Mr. Lenny Kravitz here, is swimming right in, in the lane that we pride ourselves on knowing the most about, which is to say the 60s and 70s. And I've started to think, even as you were giving that description, Adam, that the more other famous people's names you throw at this problem, the worse it gets. <laughs> but, but this is Rob here. My tweet-length review is, Lenny, dear Lenny, you're using all the ingredients that I normally appreciate, but the end product, <laughs> the end product, tastes like military rations. <laughs> Oof. By by that I mean empty calories all the way, bro. <laughs> Rob coming in hot. All right, so my quick review was funkier than the Beatles, more rockin' than Marvin Gaye, but still maintaining all that sloppy guitar work of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> this out al- this album takes adult contemporary Christian rock to strange new heights. <laughs> oh man. It's <sighs> good. It's decent good. Then I'll skip to the end. That's perfect. Well, <laughs> I'm glad about what Tony said, too. I wanted to reference what Tony said, too, about, hey, you know, if you had told me this was Lenny Kravitz's new album, I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. And, you know, I, I texted Adam this week saying something to the effect of I am probably I'm it's unfair and wrong of me to say this. But because I have such a, a, a clear idea in my head of what Lenny Kravitz sounds like, I feel like this is it. And I actually dug into a few more of his albums over the course of the week just to see how he's evolved over time or if he has, because I felt like that was completely jackass opinion. Like, it's it's really unfair mm-hmm. to say in your debut album, this is what you sound like forever. So that, that can't be right. Um, but yeah, Rob, I mean, and it's... Yet- it is right. It is correct. It is kind of what he sounds like. <laughs> yeah. So because just to yeah, I think I thought that was a salient point because it's one of my it's one of my big gripes with the album where I'll tell you where I'm coming from, which is I've never listened to a Lenny Kravitz album back to front in my life till this week. And so I knew his hits because he was omnipresent right. throughout the nineties, he's, of course. He's How like, can you not you, you know the not. hits? Right. 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 And I've always thought of him, he's got a couple songs I like okay, but in general, I think of him as a little bit of an example of a vapid, kind of vacuous hit maker out there. I think the song Fly Away is a terrible... It's pretty terrible, and the fact that that got a ton of play oh, right when we were seventeen or eighteen. On the radio. Yeah, when I was I was playing. So my my son has listened to you guys' podcast before, and going so far as to do a project for school where he used one of your episodes as the basis for a podcast analysis. Which oh is God, a oh, great gosh. time. Uh-oh. He yeah. failed. Oh, I'm so sorry, Tony. <laughs> but but he asked. He I said I was going to be on Uncle Adam's podcast this week, and he's like, Oh, cool. What album are you doing? And uh, I said it's Lenny Kravitz, and you know. Crazy 
crickets. He didn't know who that is. So I played a little bit of the album, and I was like, here, here's something you might know. And I got through Fly Away, and he's like, oh, yeah, that was in that, like, that like Beaches commercial or something. Which completely, he <laughs> was spot on. He's like, Sandals I never resort. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's been used in, like, like a cruise ship ad or something. So uh, um, that is right, and that's exactly where it belongs, because I want to clarify yeah, that what yeah. I mean by pretty <laughs> bad and vacuous is that it just lacks – what I consider any sense of soul or edge or anything, it just feels like a slurry made by an orphanage master. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, and I, the, the word soul is interesting because he's digging back into soul and gospel stuff. He's reaching, like you said, Rob, for the yes. ingredients of something really heartfelt and genuine and interesting. And, you know. So that's why, just to bring my comment home when you talked about what I was hoping, right? I try to come into these things Mm -hmm. with an open mind, of course. I was like, well, absolutely. I was glad that it was his first album, not one of those later 90s records when we announced it, and that I didn't know any of the songs on it because there weren't any like mega hits. And I was like, well, maybe what you'll get is this, what this first common first album vibe of I have, I just have these ideas that I need to express. That's the artistic intention so it's got to come out of me somehow some way and there's this extra level of sincerity and purity to things that we often talk about in debut albums and my my big complaint is that no in fact i think it's pretty similar to what i dislike about fly away not to say he doesn't have a couple good songs and a couple good aspects out there for sure we can talk about him but no he's certainly catchy it's just yeah you're right like the substance is often lacking i've i've no i've back in the the days when you guys were like rocking around in cover bands and stuff, and we were hanging out in the you know high school and college days. I know I heard Adam years like, ago. I heard Adam like <laughs> mockingly singing "Fly Away" because it was one of the like the pop songs at the time. Like absolutely, <laughs> oh, definitely happened. I'm I can sure hear your voice. Adam fun sang of that hundreds <laughs> and, of times and making right. fun of like the the dumb rhymes and things right. like that. Right, <laughs> right, well, they, right. This... Fly into the sky. Where Whoa! does he come up with them? Mind blown. He must have a dumb rhyme dictionary because it's so <laughs> consistent with his material. Clear. <laughs> Clearly, the first thing he writes down, he just sticks with. Right, so. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> He's not revisiting any of those lyrics. I, He's like, "That's gold. I'm good." <laughs> I gotta, I gotta tell you one other thing, which is, I somehow read Lenny Kravitz's memoir this week. Well done, sir. And it's called "Let Love Rule." It right? is, and so I nice. have lots of useless Lenny Kravitz. Excellent. Facts. No, that's oh, great. I love it. I can't wait for. I the, will need the, you the to knowledge bombs. <laughs> you will need to pepper in. Some additional details that I was not able to glean from the okay. <laughs> behind from VH1's behind the music, behind the music <laughs> from got like it. 1998. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I got now, all be, of now, my to Rob to what you were saying. Not to, to delay it too much further before we get into the music, but I did see a quote somewhere where he was talking about that memoir and noted that he had record executives come to him with offers to do something different in the past or to sign him, and he kept turning it down yes. until he could do what he considered his own thing. Dude, which he, ended up being this. So all the stuff yes. that he that he turned down, I guess he felt he didn't have any connection to. But I I honestly feel like this is Lenny trying to do something heartfelt, and it just doesn't hit. That's what makes me bummed out. I'm, I'm almost sorry we're coming in this hot about it. But no, I have, no, I, have like, to be I, real. I think he believes this stuff. I, I think know. it's just a little mushy. I think he's really painfully sincere. I'm a little on the other on the other end of it because I think that I there's something that I appreciate about him going so deliberately hard against the grain of what was in coming out in 1989. 
That's fair. And which, one of the things I wrote down this week is I could see this hitting harder at the time, given what was going on. Right, right. I mean, you, you sure. have a decade of hair metal. You know, uh, Millie Vanilli was just coming on the scene. They had, I think, three songs in the top 10 in the month yeah. that this came out. Janet Jackson, Madonna. The number you, one album the day this was released was Hanging Tough by the New Kids on the Block. Ooh. Yeah. So you have a guy. This is not that. This is emphatically not that. A guy coming in who basically played everything on vintage equipment, vintage instruments. But let's hop into some of the history here so we can give our listeners a little idea about who is Leonard Albert Kravitz? Where did he come from? So Lenny Kravitz is born in 1964 in New York City to parents who were both basically already in the industry. His mother, Roxy Roker, was an actor throughout the 70s, all the way through the 90s. Most notably, though, she played Helen Willis on The Jeffersons, mm-hmm. who was a neighbor character who was married to a white man. At the time, a really big deal in the 70s. And it's funny how art mimics real life, because in real life, she was, in fact, married to a white man named Cy Kravitz, who was a an NBC news producer. Uh, and later on in life, he also went on to be a jazz promoter. So... He was, Lenny Kravitz's story is not exactly him doing the Stevie Wonder thing and hanging outside (laughs) the, you know, the the studio at 12 years old with a harmonica until somebody gave him a record. He was already kind of in in the biz a bit, and that's going to help him later in life when he starts producing this debut album. Let me, uh, let me just jump in there, because the biggest thing the memoir really gets across is... And you would you kind of know this if you have even observed casually Lenny Kravitz's persona over the last forty years. First of all, I thought he was younger than he was. He he's aged well. There's no doubt about it. Must be all the, yeah. the pot and tantric sex or whatever. You're right. <laughs> but I, I think it'll do you some good. It'll do you some good. I've heard. But also, like, didn't he go to the 2022 Grammys a couple weeks ago wearing like a chainmail outfit or something? Like he's rock star, cool to the max, and he grew up. As the consummate cool kid, he was the he was basically the son of celebrities, and they were in the industry. And right. like Duke Elling- Ellington sang him "Happy Birthday" on his sixth birthday. He threw the football around with Joe Namath on the streets of New York. He's that kid. And then then he moved to Los Angeles. They sent him to Beverly Hills High, where he's going to school with people like Nick Cage and slash slash yeah he was yeah, yeah classmates with with slash so and he's he's friends with barry gordy's son you know he was good friends oh jeez i didn't know that home Holy studio crap. Yeah. talk about plugged in oh, he my was God. super plugged in so yeah, okay. i have to admit i cringe a little at i'm jealous i guess is what it really is. let's just call it, what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair yeah, Come yeah, on. yeah of right, just right. kids that have, you know people that grew up in this aura of coolness always it was always celebrity it wasn't always money because his, i think his mother got the jeffersons when he was uh i don't know eight or nine but then they, then right, they kind right. of officially got into show but even before that his parents met at like a coltrane show they were already part mm-hmm. of like the new york cool <laughs> they were in the scene theater scene and stuff yeah exactly. right right so that always bothers me because finding any semblance of cool took decades for me. I guess I'm still not there. We're being <laughs> and <honest>. he was, <laughs> yeah. What do you mean you you found it? Can you send some this way? Right. I certainly don't have it. You're right, but I I guess that so that's interesting too because how much does that color your opinion of him? If I had told you the story that he did have the Stevie Wonder story that he was grew up poor. 
had a $9 guitar and hung outside of a record studio for three years until somebody said, all right, I'll let you play a song. And then uh, out comes this first album. Would that have changed your opinion? Yeah, I, I can I can almost certainly say yes. I'm, I'm biased by my pre-existing opinion of him and reading the memoir didn't really help in my mind, his image. Because in addition, is it written by him? Is it, or is. Is it like uh, well, okay. I don't know. His name's on the cover, if that's what you mean. Yeah, but who, who knows what he that says means? He did right, right. And it's only like until he was it like till he got his first record or till he hit his first hit. What is it? It's not like his full career. Correct. Yeah, it actually only oh. goes up to when Let Love Rule sort of was released. Right. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And the other thing it really gets across. That I, I kind of knew from his persona, but he is a deep hippie type, like yeah. spiritual, mystic, BS kind of crystal. Like kind annoyingly, of annoyingly, annoyingly so. hippie. Yes. Yeah. Annoyingly so. So that didn't, I don't love that persona either. So that didn't. And like, I'm, I'm okay with that persona, but when that persona is attached to somebody, again, who is already somewhat, you know set well set up and whose parents are well to do it feels a little disingenuous like the trust fund hippie like mm-hmm. really you know so you're yeah, right that it feels a little put on yeah it leaves, leaves a bit of a bad taste in your mouth so he graduates high school in 1985 and he tells his old man i'm not going to college i'm going to you know be a rock star essentially so his father agrees to pay for his studio time at which point he meets this guy named Henry Hirsch, and they were kind of kindred spirits in terms of music, the sounds they like, the equipment they like. They're both equipment junkies and and real uh, fans of the retro vibe and all that old school equipment and stuff. And of course, I guess when you have that money, you can just go out and buy these really old things. So I have a little more context on that because Please. behind that anecdote, so he was, he was a bit of a ne'er-do-well in high school where he sort of ran away from home, if you will, and was sleeping in his car, but also doing like a fancy version of couch surfing where he'd be a, asleep on in Barry Gordy's pool house or whatever. Okay. <laughs> oh, you slept on people's couches? Yes, in their pool houses. And wow. I'll say, I'll go back and forth. Some stuff to his credit, some stuff less so, right? To his credit, he was passionate about music from a really early age. I think as early as like six, you know, he was playing guitar. He became this multi-instrumentalist. He kind of thought of himself as a drummer for a long time. He was a part of a fairly reputable boys choir where he sang classical music and was kind of classically trained vocally. And, you know, he's, he, he does play all the instruments or nearly all the instruments on this record. So that's to his credit. But the way the story, the anecdote I heard about how he got to that moment that you just described, Adam, where his dad agreed to pay for the studio sessions and he goes and works with who ends up becoming his longtime producer, Hirsch, is he had another band that he had like thoroughly invested in. They had staged this huge debut show like at the high school, costumes, the whole thing. This is when he's back, like rocking a Jerry curl. This is when he's Romeo Blue or Blue Correct. Romeo. B- Romeo Blue, and he brings everybody he knows to this show, including his dad. And then Im- apparently, immediately backstage, he was like hyped because the show went really well. He felt like the audience response was good. It was packed. His dad comes backstage with the whole band in the room and just goes. You're the only person on the stage that's talented. You need to ditch this band right now if you want to access my money to do anything. Like, you're not recording with this band, basically. And he does it. That's... Yeah. Wow. And and Tony alluded to this, too, but he actually had several instances of turning down record contracts. So that 
even when he went to record with that guy Henry Hirsch initially, he was doing it with yet another band that he had pulled together from his kind of New York friends. This was on the East Coast. They went through a bunch of sessions and the band was like, hey, are we going to like finish this? Are we going to release it? Hey, like such and such records is asking us if we want this deal. And Lenny Kravitz just wasn't feeling it. He couldn't really put his finger on why. But he just <laughs> didn't feel like it was him. And he did that a couple more times. He got offered a, a spot in a sort of a black Duran Duran is how they were pitching it to him. Oh, where yeah, he could have okay. immediately I heard. <laughs> where he could have immediately gone to Europe and toured. And then it happened like three times in total. It's kind of insane. Like what he wow. passed on to get to this point of just him playing the music. The the other anecdote that I wanted to mention is though he was he was buddies with Barry Gordy's son, Barry Gordy, the famous founder of Motown Records and also a prolific songwriter himself. And at one point, I think in high school, even when he was living in his car, Barry Gordy's son, who had access to all these this great equipment, of course, was like, yo, I got this song. My dad's going to pay for me to record it and get some of his celebrity buddies on it, but I'll give it to you. Like, do you want to play on it? Do you want to front it? You know, you're, you're a better singer than me. He listens to the tune. He's like, nah, it's cool. Anyway, the dude ends up recording it himself. <laughs> the son records it himself, dubs himself Rockwell, and has a smash hit with somebody's watching me when uh, Michael oh, Jackson funny. agrees to sing the chorus on it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Rob, thank you for doing all of the research. <laughs> it was a, it was pretty light episode. reading, guys. It was light. <laughs> like we said, he's a well-connected dude. He's right? well-connected. So he is in the position to be able to turn down three offers like that. And sure. Yeah. just wait to cherry pick the thing that feel quote feels right to him. Whereas a lot of other bands just kind of like would kill for that opportunity or would take, you know, do take the bad first contract and get stuck in it, things like that. And, you know, it painted a little bit of a thing. picture to me. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I mean, there's, there's truth in that. And there's something admirable about waiting for the right moment, waiting for your shot. It's, you it's will. fair. Like I said, he wanted, I, I read that as he wanted to, to wait until he found like the vibe that he felt was right. Something he felt that was more authentically him. So uh, I'm fine with that, and I and I I, I can respect. Yeah, that. fair fair enough. I feel like I would have done the same thing if I had the option, right? If some if I had three right. record companies, you know, uh, courting me, you know, yeah, sure, I'd no, probably but these do the same these thing, these but. incidents were in succession over the course of a series of years. He just kept getting right up to the Saying precipice no, of right. something, and then kind of ditching his band. It wasn't even just about him, but he was typically the partially because of his connections and partly because of his musicality, to be fair, I think he was usually the contingency of the offer. Sure. Yeah. All right, so let's th- jump in. We like to do an occasional thing here called uh, By the Numbers, where we throw some stats out about our good friend Lenny Kravitz here. So working our way down this list, 11 studio albums over the course of his career, 40 million albums sold worldwide over the course of that 35-year career. 19 musicians are listed on this album, even though he plays most of the uh, the bass, guitar, drums, and obviously vocals. There's a lot of keyboards, strings, horns on the album as well. 16 world tours that he has under his belt. Four Grammy Awards. One, the number of Tisha Campbells that are on this album. Do you remember Gina <laughs> from Martin? Heck yeah. Yes, I do. She sings backup on this. That's almost that enough to make it, you know, in my top five, maybe. All right. He, he was a uh, fan of dating sitcom stars in the late 80s. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> totally. <laughs> he had a type. Oh, Lisa Bonet. Uh, 61, which is the spot that this album reached on the Billboard Top 200. And three 
the number of garbage throwaway tunes that they crammed into the CD release version <laughs> of this album at the very end. We had talked in prior episodes about the advent of CDs and all of a sudden artists and bands said, well, hey, we've got 70 minutes. We have to fill it up. And they definitely didn't need the additional 10 to 12 minutes thrown in at the end of this one because this album comes in on the, the CD version at around 55 minutes and around... Yeah, around 46, I'm starting to get a little tired. Yeah. At least that that was my experience with no, it. No, that's fair. I mean, there are some long songs, like unnecessarily mm. long ones yeah. on here. I agree. Yeah, did he play the role of editor for himself? <laughs> Perhaps not. He, he was he just so into the groove, man. He couldn't stop. <laughs> he He's the one-man show. Yeah, you know, you guys have show. talked before on the show about uh, when you're starting out as as a musician, starting on drums. You know, getting your foundation right. there. So to hear he thought himself as a you know a drummer to begin with is interesting because I, I know that's come up here. Yeah, it's a legitimate compliment. He's he's an accomplished musician, and I think he really yeah, does he's have clearly a, talented. Talented. He's, <laughs> he's clearly talented, and he I think he does have what you could probably call a great rock and roll voice. Now I'm going to complain about how he uses it a whole bunch. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the talent is there, definitely. Speaking of that rock and roll squeal that he does occasionally let's jump into the uh the first track that we had just played a little bit of at the top of the episode let's roll another couple seconds of that and jump into that one jumping back into sitting on top of the world here sitting on top of the world sitting on top of the world All right, anything in particular you guys dug, you hated? What did you think about this? As, again, this is track one, side one, debut album. We always talk about this. There are a couple that stand out in my head that have been phenomenal. That Fiona Apple one, we said that that set the mood for the album and her career. What do you think? So since I know we just played the opening of the song, what the hell is with that bad croak note in the first 20 seconds? (laughs) Yeah, just left it it's bizarre what i what i wrote for his voice in the song is wobbly he just kind of allows that kind of messiness to be there and i think he liked it and is proud of it and wanted it to sound unpolished but the you know and here's the thing like listening to this coming in fresh i was okay with it on first listen because i'm i was just hearing it and it's only track one but he does a lot more of that throughout the course of this album um i you know i liked the funkiness of it i wasn't necessarily i didn't know what to expect you know, not only knowing it from his radio hits, I like the kind of general funky vibe in the song. But yeah. you know, really, it, rather than being like a like a forceful intro, it was just kind of like a, a groove. And you know, that was it. So I, I'm probably gonna have some of the same comments for a lot of the songs, which is I thought this is one of the more interesting songs. Maybe texturally, there was some different rhythmic, interesting stuff in here. You know, it's it's not bad. There's a couple. There's like a cool transition around one minute in. I think that I that I noted. But he hits 
the same screamy rock and roll note in that every squeal. song. Yeah. Uh, and it yeah, gets right, it. right. Yeah. It reminded me of how, you know, have you ever noticed how Tom Cruise in every movie he's in has to ride a motorcycle? Like, even if it's like <laughs> right, 7,000 years in the future on some alien world, they somehow Maybe work this it was in. his mission statement. Right. This is my thing. Right, I'm exactly. Do that in every song. <laughs> exactly. So I thought that was just way overused. And, you know, I'll counterpoint it slightly with one of the songs of, of his that I've always liked which is not on this record is it ain't over till it's over yeah that's and fantastic. i went back and listened to that one he doesn't do it on that one he doesn't do his one vocal trick nope, nope. right nope. you know <laughs> he stays in that kind of chilled out 60s falsetto mode or 70s right. whatever it is yeah and he's like Smokey robinson up in there exactly that's so that's part of the reason why i still i still like that song and i, I listened to it yeah. again this week but that that same vocal affect thing it just it just feels like a trick and he's only got like one trick it's like I said, like coming into it clean. Okay, cool. But he did it again and again and again. Yeah. He can sing though. So I. Sure. If you were to look at it as I'm coming into this the very first time, he does that weird cracking vocal thing. But then maybe 20 seconds later, he does this really nice vocal run. And the line is something like, all I do is sing the blues. And he does this. Sing the blues. Really nice. And it's within the span of 30 seconds, you think. Oh, this guy's voice is cracking, and then immediately after that run, you're like, "Oh, this dude can sing!" Like this, yeah. so which leads me to think, like, was that a deliberate thing where he was just kind of had to be. vamping on a? Yeah, I no, I agree. He yeah, he can definitely sing. I, there's no yeah. doubt in my mind about that. Another note about this tune, though, I think in general, well, so two things. One on on the album overall, which is the first time I played it, maybe even the first two times I played it in the background. We had a couple people over for dinner. I put it on. Yeah, that kind of background music situation. I think I played it while I was working, not really actively listening to it. And in that context, I really liked it. Like, it worked. It felt like a band. This is before I researched it at all. I didn't know he played all the instruments. Didn't It didn't bump me in that way at all. You know, it's, it's pretty seamless. But when I started listening more closely to it is when I started to get a little more annoyed by it. And <laughs> specifically around the I play every instrument thing, Pretty seamless overall, but I noticed it in this song in the group vocals where it's just all him. I felt that right. kind of took me out of it when I even started to, to tune into those vocals at all. Let's drop in some of those harmonies here. Yeah, I can dig that. It's a it's it's an interesting choice when you have the lead singer also doubling, tripling, quadrupling, doing all of the harmonies themselves. It's a much different sound than when you have a Tisha Campbell. Mm. <laughs> when you have Gina singing backups and doing harmonies on your on your song. Uh that that's interesting. I also was a little annoyed that this song just kind of petered out. Yep. It yeah. just kind of like rank yep blurped to a yeah. conclusion. Here's another interesting thing. He's had multiple offers, multiple variations of his band. He's been putting this album together. They recorded it over the uh, over the course of a year and a half. And you know that you're preparing your debut album and this is track 1. You know what I mean? I I I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. a little maybe I'm I'm 
in the future looking back and saying, why did he make that decision? Like, Right. Uh, again, I, I can see it hitting harder at the time because it feels a little more organic than other stuff that was on the radio. It's got like a it's got a fun vibe. It's got that kind of hippie language at the end there with, you know, music and love and all that kind of stuff. OK, cool. So it's just a chill little groove to start the album off. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like the kind of like, you know, gut punch of a, you know, rock and start that maybe uh, you know, could have been there. But I don't think it really gets to that point, to be fair on this album. So. so let's talk. I have a little context on how these songs kind of came about that I think is is relevant to what you just said. Um, Go in on. Particular, yeah. So because we've talked a lot about first albums on this podcast and the old adage of you have your whole life to write your first album and nine months to write your second album. <laughs> and what it's, you know, what it's attempting to say or two things it might be saying is that you have a long time to polish the songs, right? And think about them and order them and tighten them up and produce them and arrange them. Um, now, that was not the situation here. And I think you can hear it. Meaning, even though he was playing in bands, all these other bands, having all these recording contracts, these were all separate projects that did not involve these songs at all. So he had never played any of these songs live, not even one time. And let alone with a band, not even by himself on like an acoustic guitar. This material was written pretty close to when it was recorded. I know he did spend a fair amount of time, as you just alluded to, Adam, a year and a half on like the overdubs and the polishing of the recordings. But when it came to the from writing to initial tracking, I'm under the impression that was a much shorter period of time. Oh, and okay. What, and so what happened was, after all his bands one by one blew up, or he blew them up, he started a relationship with Lisa Bonet. Now this is right. while he was engaged to another woman. He meets Lisa Bonet, who's like supposedly his dream girl while she's on the Cosby show Mm -hmm. on a break or whatever. They meet, they become best friends instantly, but not a relationship because he's still engaged. But then they start spending all their time together. They really have this like hippie gypsy vibe, whatever it is, all this crystal stuff. And eventually, (laughs) obviously, they decide crystals, man, hashtag crystal stuff. (laughs) They're on the same wavelength, whatever it is. All the all the lyrics that we're going to talk about on this record, all the hippy dippy thing. She's a flower child. Yeah, that's that's their wavelength. I think she was 18 and he was like 21 when they first met. So anyway, I think it takes a couple years, but they have a kind of a close friendship for a little while. Then they get together. And they start living together right away. And he is so inspired by this new love. It's completely changed in his words. It's completely changed his worldview. And wow. so he's literally just like All sitting right. around while she's pregnant with Zoe Kravitz. Who, yeah, well, I was just watching Batman uh, with her in it uh, the other day. Yep. She's a great yep. actress. But anyway, <laughs> so like he's he's newly inspired by this new love, by the coming of his first child. And he's sitting out in their garden and he's writing all these songs and then he pretty much immediately goes to record them. And I think that some of that lack of polish and like love days is evident here. Got it. Fair. Couldn't write an couldn't write an outro. So he just kinda let it peter out. <laughs> love love will take care of it, Adam. Right. Yeah. <laughs> love Love will heal everything. No, but who's gonna pay for this? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Well, he's with Lisa Bonet, who's on season nine of The Cosby Show and like season two of A Different World. Right. And yeah. she's got plenty of money for, for the three of them. For her, yeah, for her, her boyfriend slash husband's right. uh, little dream project here. All right, that's good to know. All right, let's move on to uh, the second tune on our focus list here. This one 
is called Let Love Rule. This was, I, I think this was probably considered the hit off the album. So let's, let's run a little bit of that right now. So this tune, and I think I listened to the album much more from a an instrument like an instrument and production standpoint, and I absolutely love the way this song is recorded, structured, the implement or the instrumentation rather, the way the stereo is set up. There's just Hammond organ all over this. You guys know I'm a whore for Hammond organ, so <laughs> I loved this tune. I thought it was uh yeah, it just it hit all the right notes for me. Thoughts. I think it was a it was definitely a catchy pop jam. Um, it wasn't one that I ever heard before, um, so it wasn't particularly enduring, I guess, in the uh, the pop you know culture oeuvre. Um, but yeah, it had some sweet harmonies. I did like how it was produced. It just has like a, a fun build throughout. Um, it, one thing that did bug me though is when you go into the first, I guess, chorus where he's like, let love, like that thing. Mm -hmm. He goes into that like 30 seconds into the song with those shouting vocals. And he's like, he's like ramping up. And it just says, (laughs) it's like a a fish song. It's weird. (laughs) And he does, like the next time he does it, it's much fuller. It's at like 150. He does it again. And like, He's got the harmonies there, and he's got like three or four Lenny Kravitzes stacked on top of each other, and it's got more power. That I liked. I just felt like it it started to like pick up steam immediately, and I was like, all right, this album's really going to take off, and it was like, <laughs> like a whimper there. It was, <laughs> that it was first, that more first chorus. Right away. All right. See, I, yeah. I looked at it from the, I noted that as well, Tony, but I looked at yeah. it from kind of the opposite angle, which is I found that drop into the chilled out chorus to be an un, a, help, a nice, unexpected turn. Very Beatlesque, obviously, right? When you're when they lead you to expect this bigger punch, and I felt that a lot of the record in general was was expected, kind of just like an exercise. I know he thinks he's mm-hmm. creating his version of Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions, but it's you know it's kind of it's kind of hollow to me in comparison to that. And this was an example of something that at least felt unexpected. And maybe I guess to your point, your your comment is that the chorus doesn't correctly follow up with the rock and roll screamy energy. Right, my he's comment, setting it up to take off. My comment is sort of the reverse, which is he uses the rock and roll scream too, way too often. He doesn't know how to keep it in the in his pants. And <laughs> that's fair. That's the problem. That's fair, but, you know, we're on track too, so I'm okay with <laughs> sure, it still. Sure, I dug the, the saxophone. I thought that for a tune, generally I hate saxophone in I, the I'm 80s. What? And it, it yeah, worked. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of there. But this like little Lisa Simpson it, saxophone there, I was cool with. Yeah. 
worked. It worked on this album, and something else I, I or on this song rather, and something else I noticed about this song as well. There's no guitar. In fact, oh, I'm sorry. The only guitar is just like a ratty sounding acoustic guitar that's panned hard left. But there's no electric guitar in this song, which I thought was interesting after mm. getting through it and thinking like, oh, this is kind of a slower rock song. But listening back, no guitar. That was kind of cool. Well, we should mention the sax is that guy Carl Denson, who still tours with a band. Like he's he's a known guy out there. Although I noticed that Lenny did not mention his name in the whole story of this album, which I thought was really odd. Huh. I like the saxophone just fine. He's clearly a talented player, but I thought tonally it reminded me very much, and I know we're in a theme here, of like a sitcom theme song. <laughs> you know what I wrote down? It feels like when they come back to SNL for a second during yes, a commercial break yes. and you hear the band playing while they're setting up for the next sketch. It was that's dead. you know what? You're totally right. That's what it was. He's he has a very similar tone to the SNL, you know, the GE Smith era. I don't know what that sax yeah, player's I, name absolutely. was. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Let's let let's drop here. I'm gonna give myself a challenge on the edit of this episode. <laughs> let's drop a side by side of the SNL and this saxophone <laughs> solo and see if we can determine. Challenge accepted. All right, one other, th- uh, we talked about the scream. There's a scream that he does at the four minute and 20 second mark <laughs> where I'm, I'm just picturing a cartoon of him and he starts screaming and the microphone just like dissolves into dust <laughs> because it just completely <laughs> overloads it. He just he just goes so hard on the mic and it's not it's not the gain isn't set correctly but i kind of i kind of dig it okay yeah it was a little overridden shouting thing yeah it's just this ridiculous scream that uh, yeah i mean this felt like i mean it ended with kind of a drawn out little funky jam it felt beatlesy and like his hey jude right he was just chanting let love rule again and again and again at the end of it and it was fine i you know it's i thought it was a cool song it's one of the higher points on the album. Sure, um, sure. But, you know, it only it, the only reason it's stuck in my head is because I've listened to this 17 times this week. <laughs> Welcome to our hell, Tony. <laughs> yeah, I totally get it, you know. I, I came to appreciate it more as I went along. I thought it was catchy at first, and then I was like, of the, albums, of the songs on this album that I'm going to listen to again now, I, I don't mind this one. I'm listening to it again. It's cool. <laughs> I buy you this know. as the single too. Yeah, I mean, I'll sign on for everything you said. I think that, but this this idea just pervades everything, which is that it doesn't feel like there's passion or pathos really being expressed. I don't know how to I don't know how to put it. And part of it is that he does not use restraint on those vocals because those great vo- he is able to emote vocally, but he overuses it to the point. Where it's it no just, longer special. It just burns right. me out. And I did have this moment of realization where I was like, you know, if you gave me a blank CD, dating myself, blank CD without his <laughs> name on it, and you were just like, this is from, this is some guy you've never heard of, um, wannabe <laughs> Bill Withers from 1974, you know? <laughs> I would have probably liked it a lot better. That's the truth of it. That's fair. 
I mean, his influences are very, very clear. Like, it's clear yeah. he loves classic rock. It's clear he likes Prince. It's clear that, like, you know, the, the names you rattled off at the beginning, Adam, are all names that I wrote down, like, at, at some point this week. Like, this sounds like X. Yeah. You know? Right, right. So that it, it's clear that he's a st- he loves music, like you said, Rob. He's a student of music. Um, I just you're you're right also in that it often feels like he's just mixing ingredients together. He knows what it should sound like. Yes. He's he knows that this should be here, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it has his own heart and soul in it. It's just kind of happening. And he's good at it. He can make he it competently it. happen and put it together. It's just devoid of like that soul. That's missing. I th- I think so too. Yeah, you, you you said it, Tony. He has the formula down, and I'll yeah. credit to him for that because it's not easy to get the formula down. But especially from a first album, that's not necessarily a good thing. The analogy right. maybe would be like post Pinkerton Weezer, where you go like, oh, they mm-hmm. understand how to make catchy pop songs, and now I'm yeah. now I know that <laughs> the veil has been lifted, and now I'm sort of less interested. Oh crap! Yeah, right. <laughs> but, they're but literally I, following a formula, <laughs> right? So, and I th- I don't know a lot of I I have found myself having that thought a lot that it feels like an exercise. He's a technician. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to yeah. craft, but yep. there's something missing, some intangible component. And he's acting from the, I think it's something like he's acting from the perspective of, I've already been a rock star my whole life, man. I just decided, just figured I might as well make a record. Well, here's a guy who his whole life has just been effortlessly cool and accepted as a cool guy. So maybe he's just thinking like, because I did this, it has an aura of cool to it. People have always liked what I've done. So this must be cool because I made this cool thing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like when you don't have to try. Which I mean, I think he tried, but no, he he's he know. knows what he's doing. It's just right. that that's I think that's what's missing. It's that you know, it's that intangible, essential, invisible thing that would elevate this to the level of like, okay, I get his unique perspective as an artist, not just I understand who Lenny Kravitz is and what he sounds like. It's a different thing. See, I'm glad you guys are on the podcast because all I did was listen to the production and the instruments, and I was like, I love this. They're good. No, it's, <laughs> they it's are good. really organic. Yeah. All right, so gentlemen, it's time to go to church. All right, <laughs> let's get. I'll get in the minivan. We're gonna strap in, and we're gonna go listen to "I Build This Garden for Us." I build this garden for us. I build this garden for us. All right, I'll take a swipe at this one first. So <laughs> I ge- I generally like this song. Uh, it sounds the most produced on the album. I, I do like that it's a bit of a wall of sound. It comes in with the strings hard. It's a cool progression. There's some nice electric piano in it. There's one line in there that 
got me and made me think about my wife and love. And he said something like, when we're old, we'll like close the gate and we'll just be together in our little garden by ourselves. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet. And then like 30 seconds later, he starts screaming the Lord's prayer at me. I feel like I was at... I was at a nice romantic dinner with my wife and a street preacher came in. It was like ramming it on a Bible on the table. (laughs) Thy will will be done on earth. Like, whoa, (laughs) pump the brakes there, Lenny. There's a little bit of Bible camp in this album. Right. Yeah, just a little bit. But He's deeply spiritual. He had some deep spiritual uh, moments (laughs) when he was 12 or something, and it's never been the same since. I I think he said he considers himself both a Christian and a Jew. Which two are mutually oh. exclusive as far as I as far as That's I his know. whole that dude, that's his whole thing and that's part of his whole coolness. It's his He's shtick, like, I'm right? yin and yang, dude. I'm a Gemini. Right, I'm everything and nothing at the same time. Right. It's all hey. I'm love and hate. I'm up and down. I'm monogamous and a womanizer. Don't worry about right. it, baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh yes. I, I wrote Jesus as in a prayer. This is boring rock music. Please deliver me. I no like <laughs> again though we if, if we tolerate this kind of bullshit in the context of of storied music career maybe if this was like a Ringo B side or something I'd right. be more accepting <laughs> right but like, this is like track four on your debut album or something <laughs> but not on debut right. albums by people with famous friends I'm not accepting sorry yeah I mean he he's still shouting some of the lines for no reason. Um, he's got a he's got a very like McCartney esque bass line in here somewhere. Um, there's like the I like that the gospel choir shows up into the guitar solo at the end. Like I dig that. We're firmly in religious territory, and I'm not overtly against that. Sure, um, sure. Like you know, but like the Our Father's a little ham fisted, and that's yep. something that that to me is what bothers me. It comes across as like. There's no finesse. There's no subtlety. There's no – it doesn't feel authentic. It feels ham-fisted, and that's what usually bugs me. I like a little bit of you know artistry to that. Um, but you know, it, it, this felt to me at first listen like one of those songs that McCartney would just slip in the middle of an album and still does and could not care less if you think it's sappy or cheesy. But like you're saying, Rob, he can get away with it because it's Paul McCartney. Yeah. Right? <laughs> And the vibe and the melody are a specific blend of like sentimentality and flirting with edge that never shows up. And he just kind of he reminds you who's singing every once in a while by shouting. And, (laughs) you know, it just kind of happened. And it was there was a lot of sound. But I don't know. I felt like the, the song that preceded this was My Precious Love, which I found a lot more compelling. I don't know. I think you're giving it you're giving it too much credit. I I thought of it as a song that McCartney didn't think was good enough for him, so he gives it to Ringo, and then Ringo's like, "Nah, nah, <laughs> this can be your B side, buddy. Enjoy." <laughs> Even Ringo passes it up. Yeah, listen, no, there's nothing wrong with being religious inherently, not at all. But no, I don't no, like no. being right, right. a. I don't like being hit over the head with it. That's one piece of it. But B, yeah. and call me. Apply whatever names you like to this comment and, and my personality therein. But does anything, looking at this guy out in the world, Lenny Kravitz, does anything tell you that this person is a religious man in any traditional sense? <laughs> He's part of some, like, sex cult religion that he right. made up, maybe. <laughs> I just want the song about that. I just feel like that's his authentic experience, and we're not getting it. Rob, he's got a ramble, which I'm going to take a quick <laughs> side, a side route here. I discovered that our good friend Nena Cherry... Actually wrote oh. a diss track about our friend Lenny <laughs> oh because she was friends with Lisa Bonet. <laughs> oh. And 
in the first world tour, Lenny may have rambled a bit, and I think word <laughs> spread, and so Nana Cherry wrote a song called Buddy X. Works better than an average pickup line. You put your woman out to pasture on the promises you gave her last year. Peace and love is on your head. And the grass is greener, playing around. Your fantasy is what you spread. But am I This is exactly what you would expect a diss track from Nana Cherry to be. Oh, the sordid tale there's, of Lenny Kravitz. They're so it's so appropriate because they're so <laughs> treading in the same. They're going to the same country club, man. She's the same person. <laughs> oh, so you're right. It is super famous tepid. parents. Yep, and it's super just cool from birth. A cool kid who was, as Tom famously said on our Nana Cherry podcast, this is what happens when your friends are too supportive. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> They don't yeah. tell you you suck. And I listen. I feel bad. Here's one of the things I wrote down, and I think it applies to Nana Cherry too, because I, I I do almost feel bad because I do think they're probably both really approaching art and music very sincerely and with a sincere love, but they're both in this category of like a hemophiliac royal who's lived way too long <laughs> in the tower of the castle. And they're like trying to approximate <laughs> what real human emotion is, but they're so disconnected. From the plebs. <laughs> I'm just picturing that 30 Rock episode with Pee Wee Herman yes. when he plays the invalid prince. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's totally. <laughs> so good. That is a sound assessment. I have no notes. Other than I just, I just, I like when a diss track is clear in who and what it's actually dissing. Um, this one didn't come out as overtly, you know, it's it's against the idea of philandering and that's, that's laudable, I guess. But it's just kind of, eh. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm too into like hip hop that does it with more of teeth, you know, more of an edge. <laughs> sure. Oh, oh, Nana. All right, let's get back on track here. Keep this love train rolling with Lenny. And the next song on our focus list titled, Does Anybody Out There Even Care? The dream is lost. Don't let it slip away. Days won't be far away. Cause when there's not the sun, there's no way you can run. So it's one of my least favorite titles, but I actually ended up liking this song. It was one of my one of the better songs for me. And partly it's because he stays in the 60s mode versus the 70s emoting at the microphone mode. He he does he does get to the soulful belting pretty quickly. But I thought the song mm-hmm. had nice harmonies overall. I thought it had one of the better choruses on the record. I like the bridge. He's got a problem with lyrics for sure, and it pervades the song. Yeah. Too, but again, there were lyrics on this album. I'm so terrible right. with actually listening to lyrics. I assume there were some bad lines in this one. It's like an anti-racist message, which is great. It's just heavy-handed and forgettable, and it doesn't it doesn't have the soul-stirring 
impact that I think maybe he thought it did or intended it to have. This is what you expect from a bloated former rock star. Like, I'm thinking of, like, the Russell Brand (laughs) character in Get Him to the Greek who records African Child. (laughs) I noticed that the whole album, the, the beats per minute kind of felt on the lower side. Right, the entire thing kind of felt like it never. There was never, with the exception of that, Mister Cab, Mister Cab Driver was the only one that oh, I yeah, felt yeah. kind of was cooking. And even that yeah. tune is is terrible. Um, <laughs> again, you want to talk about ham fisted? It's just like a blues song with some very uh, blatant lyrics on it. Um, See, I but felt that, like that was him doing a Beatles song. Uh, okay, okay, I can see that. It's got the elements of like one of those kind of like early to mid Beatles kind of put, you know, and again, it's just a formula, formula Beatles at that time. At first, when it starts, it's got that riff at the beginning. It sounded, you know, I'm on this podcast, so I have to name check the B-52s. It sounds like the B-52s at the start, and then it becomes the Beatles. So There was a Farfisa elsewhere in the album, too, that I found somewhere, and I wrote down B-52s for Tony. Yes. Oh, this is right. (laughs) (laughs) Baby. <laughs> it does, it, you know, Mr. Cab Driver does break up the sound a little bit on the album, at least. It just doesn't feel like something that, to me, f- is special, you know? And maybe, again, at the time, this sell- this definitely would have sounded different to people. It would have hit wholly differently for people to hear this kind of album, given what else was there. Like, Paula Abdul's Forever Your Girl was uh, popular at the time, you know? So that's the first tape I ever bought. How dare you, Tony? <laughs> I'm being serious. That's literally I bought that and Doc and Doctor Feelgood at the at the uh, music store when I was ten or something. No, I, I hear what you're saying. Context is important here because this was really just before the big revival, the kind of rootsy revival that was grunge, which was back right. to like a band rock and roll aesthetic, away from mm-hmm. the pomp and circumstance of hair metal. And the crazy synthesizers of New Wave, you know. So, I, yeah. And, and we sense. also got a good solid, like, what, like six, eight years and then onward of like singer songwriter vibes, right? So, I, I don't know if this is on the list because he, you know, our friend is positing that this is somehow like responsible for Dave Matthews? Responsible for starting what became <laughs> grunge and that like oh Lenny Kravitz tapped into the, the you know the the real instrument craze that people were waiting for again and kicked off like mm. what became blues traveler or something I don't know but like yeah it's just kind of it, it seems um it, it's weird because it's it's kind of timeless like this doesn't have an, an aesthetic that leads me to think it's from any particular point in musical history because it's just drawing on influences and doesn't it doesn't sound like it was made in 1989 that's why Definitely i say if you told not. me he just yeah. made it agreed I, I would believe you um it just doesn't i just doesn't feel like it does anything completely stand out that's all speaking of standouts how about this last yeah. song <laughs> All oh, right, yeah, let's yeah, let's, let's move it. it all along here to so a quick note here about this the way this album is structured is I think when it was originally potentially released on cassette maybe there was 10 tracks on it ended with a kind of a downbeat bluesish gospely song called B then Which I there's actually these liked. yeah it's, it's a decent <laughs> tune 
There's a, three additional bonus tracks that are considered the CD bonus tracks. So I assume that if you bought this album on CD in 1991, these additional three would be on there. And it's, I think I mentioned at the top, it's an additional 10 minutes of just garbage. So we decided to pick <laughs> one of those three songs as our final song on our focus list. This one is called Empty Hands. Listen for the castanets. Yeah, not a whole lot. I, uh, it's weird. Uh, it, <laughs> but not weird good. There's Western illusions. There's more Jesus illusions. Yeah. It, it's, you know, then there's like this fiddle bit, and I just, yeah, I don't know, like I should go listen to Lindsey Sterling or something. Like it's just there. I don't know. Like, or maybe like I could listen to like like one of the real bangers from a church hymn book, you know, like on Eagle's Wings or oh, Amazing no, but Grace. Even, gather even us those in, bang- bro. That's the banger. Right. Sure, gather us in. Let's go. I'm there. <laughs> I feel like e- those songs have more teeth than this song. That's this what I'm saying. Most, those have the soul. Just milk toast, nothing about it. He could be singing about Satan. Uh, what's the Simpson line? All the best bands are associated with Satan, <laughs> Satanica, right. or whatever. Yeah, it's just kind like, of here. It is the. It's very much filler. Yeah, yeah. It's cringe. Definitely rock vibes. is what I wrote down. I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it fails on production and arrangement. And I must make note of this because I think we've complained about this song in the past. But the <laughs> rhythm that he uses in the coda. As far as I'm concerned, that rhythm is owned by Led Zeppelin's Babe. I'm going to I know it's unfair to own a rhythm, but it's like the Hitler mustache. It just happened. I'm sorry. What was the uh, Iggy Pop song? Like, again, I know you can't copyright a drum beat, but Lust for Life, boom, ga, boom, ga, like, right, right, that's, right. that's a thing, you know? Yeah. You can't necessarily take that. Sure. So, yeah, I get what you mean. My, the only positive thing I had on this note was I thought the string arrangements at 240 were nice. Granted, they matched the song, which is just odd, uh, but I thought they sounded nice. Yeah. I don't know. To me, like listening to the the album throughout the week, I kind of got to a place where if it ended with B, I would have been happier. Which it originally did. And that's and that was better. And that was like a Lenin y kind of song. It just it had it was, you know, the the lyrics have a good, bad, ugly battle of all sides of someone thing. And that's a at least a little bit more introspective than the other stuff. I can get Mm -hmm. to that. It's kind of melancholy, even though it's got a kind of Mr. Rogersy, you know, beef be for real with yourself thing and, you know, going, but, but you know, it's chill piano and just like double track Lenny, you know, that was fine. But this one had, I felt like it had a little more heart where others were just really ham fisted and kind of, 
you know. Yeah, I dig that. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up here with the songs. And now we come to the part of the podcast that everyone waits for, the most exciting part where we give you our jackass opinions on whether or not you actually need to hear this album before you die and whether or not Robert Dimery was an idiot for throwing it onto his list. So let's throw things over to our guests tonight, Tony. Oof. Uh, this is an album of really pleasant sounding music with and it, with a, some cool grooves. Um, it alludes to a lot of music you like that is a lot more original. Um, it it grew on me over the course of the week and then started to feel a little more cold, oddly. And, and it's it's interesting because as I became more familiar with it, I, I began to think a little bit about what I originally liked is like, you know, Rob, as you said, just kind of listening to it as background music. You're like, okay, this is fun. And then you listen to it a little more depth and you throw the headphones on. You're like, what is what is missing? Why am I not connecting with it? And so while there's a lot I do like about it, and I can totally appreciate, again, that it probably hit a lot harder at the time, it is something that I I got 41 years into life on this planet without having heard. <laughs> And I can tell you that if I live another 41 and I hadn't heard it, I would have been just fine. So while it is interesting enough, and I'm not mad that I listened to it, I feel that it is unnecessary. So I do not believe it is an album you absolutely must hear before you die. While it's neat and interesting and the the history of Lenny Kravitz, I guess, it doesn't really do anything particularly earth-shattering in terms of like popular music or, you know... Again, I would. I feel like it would have been on my radar in some way if it had. Um, so yeah, I'm. I'm going to. I'm going to say no on this. All right, Rob. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I pulled this review from the Village Voice, Robert Criscow, and he said, "For a black Jewish Christian married to Lisa Bonet, who over, over, overdubbed his Hendrix Beatles hybrid himself, not bad." But that's a lot of marketing to live down. And I yikes! I agree with our friend The Grump. This is not an essential record. I see how it could have had a little more impact in its moment in time. And I also see how it set off a career of someone who certainly sold a lot of records. But I think the, I'm being perfectly honest, I think the reason Lenny Kravitz sold a lot of records is because there's just not that many rock bands and people don't really actually give a crap about music anymore. So I don't think he has, I'm not, I don't think this is a storied career that we need to dig into and historically understand where it comes from. This to me is, and his career in a broader sense, is like rock and roll posturing. Like similar to how a drag queen is an outsized, like cartoonish version of what femininity is. He's that to right. rock stardom. Oh, word. That's interesting. <laughs> He's the far side, like version of a rock star. Yes, which makes it feel like he's kind of going through the motions, even if he himself is sincere, which a part of me feels bad because I think he's the kind of human being who might listen to this and go like, oh, bummer. I really love I love them anyway. (laughs) Sorry, Lenny. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it's a vanity project for someone who has not earned a vanity project. That's a really, a really interesting take. So this has been a great discussion. This is Adam here. Great discussion with you guys, because like I said, I came in listening to this, as I do with most things, just listening to the instruments and the productions and the chord patterns, and I didn't necessarily look at it from some of the the context that you guys have provided. So just to be a contrarian, though, I'll even though my vote doesn't matter at this point, because it's <laughs> you guys have already decided, so we'll just make it fun. 
I'll say that uh, I think that for the time, this album uh, was aggressively against the pop culture and uh, the way that he approached song making, at least recording, which is what I focus mostly on, I think was was super cool at the time. So for the hell of it, I'll say you need to listen to it, even though we're now two against one. So I'm sorry, Mr. Kravitz, if you are listening. Lisa Bonet, if you're listening. Nana Cherry, if you're listening. I'm Jason so- Momoa, if you're listening. <laughs> oh, but here's another, here's another annoying thing. Have you heard that Letty Kravitz like really is bros with Jason Momoa? Yes, who, I have. And I, that's God. amazing. Like, no, he's the best, man. He's the best guy. We hang out all the time. Everything's great. It's like, shut up. <laughs> all right. I already regret my yeah. decision. <laughs> if you if you listen to Lenny Kravitz's top five songs on Spotify, you've heard all the Lenny Kravitz you need. I will still talk about <laughs> th- Five songs. All, that's it. That's it. All that said, there was nothing unpalatable about this. It was almost too palatable. That was the problem. Yeah, so, exactly. Listen, if you're, you just if you're, do anything. If right. you're programming background music for an Applebee's, go for it. <laughs> It's the Muzak that's in the background at an Abercrombie and Fitch. But there's nothing unique, in my opinion, there's just nothing unique here. So I'd rather listen to Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions or Stand by Sly and the Family Stone or the Beatles. You know, it's like, I know where to get those things. Direct. Go back to where it comes from. Yeah. All right, folks. So there you have it. Like we said, uh, Lenny Kravitz's debut album. Sorry. Not on the list. All right, Lenny, you'll, uh, I'm sure you'll do just fine. You'll bounce back, buddy. You'll, you'll find bounce a way. back. So now the second most exciting part of the podcast where we decide what we're going to be listening to for the next episode. So, Rob, do you want to ha- do the honors? Sure. Let's give this bad boy a spin. I'm a pins and needles. Next week's album shall be The Flying Burrito Brothers. The huh. album is called The Gilded Palace of Sin. All right. I've heard of some of those words in that configuration. <laughs> I've heard of burritos <laughs> and uh, brothers and sin, but not. I, yeah, no, I haven't heard this record either. I think, but there's kind of a country country rock band. I feel like ah, Graham, okay. Graham Parsons was in this band at a certain point. Oh, nice. All right. So in that well, in that vein, maybe. Well, this will be interesting. Another brand new listen for me as well. And as I return to uh, my listener status, I will be glad to tune in and check that yes. out. Yes. It'll be the one the one person that emails us. <laughs> Our ones of listeners. Speaking of which, folks, did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? We would love some feedback. Feel free to email us at 1001 Album Complaints. That's 1001, the number, Album Complaints at gmail.com. We want to thank Tony for joining us again on another oh, a episode. Pleasure. A pleasure, guys. Always a pleasure, Tony. Tony, tell us about what you got going on. Oh, my goodness. Endless projects, all vanity in nature. Yes. Like my buddy Lenny. Uh, Lenny but, you would know, appreciate it. The folks can hear me on my now way too old 11-year <laughs> podcast, You Like the Worst Stuff, which we do almost every week still. We're in 440-some episodes now, and it's Jeez. me and a couple well of pals done. talking about general nerdery and what we love and hate in pop culture, and then just making fun of each other's, you know general interests and it's a lot of fun and it sounds like four friends hanging out and picking on each other and then you know remembering occasionally to talk about a topic Um, excellent 
a lot of fun. So yeah, check me out there or find me on Twitter with my, you know, inane brain ramblings at tweets by the Tony. So I think that is going to wrap it up for us today for 1001 album complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. And I'm Tony. Boosh. Boosh.